Welcome to Habs Unfiltered. This independent podcast is featured on the Hockey Writers and iHeartRadio, bringing you honest and unfiltered entertainment and discussion on the Montreal Canadiens and hockey news. Your hosts, Matt Smith, Treg Wilson, and Blaine Putney are proud to be one of your trusted sources. If you are talking about it, so are we. And welcome back to Habs Unfiltered. I'm your host, Blaine Putvey, and I'm joined by my co-host, Hattie Kalakesh. Yeah, perfect. How's it going today? Well, you know, it's it's nice to get a co-host for, for an episode uh, that, you know, has some knowledge because I have none. <laughs> I wouldn't so, go that far. <laughs> I'm going to lean heavily onto you. Uh, cool. So for my get, uh, for my uh, my listeners, for you guys, Hattie's coming back onto the show and he's going to cover his uh, his Dauber list for the draft. And we're going to go through some prospects. And Hattie's going to school me a little bit on what's coming up in the 2023 draft. So uh, Hattie, why don't you tell our listeners before we kick everything off where they can find your list? Yeah, so my list is on Twitter. Uh, it's a pinned tweet on my profile. So if you just go on my profile on Twitter at HattieK underscore scouting, that'll be the first tweet you see. Uh, it's a top 128 of the prospects I've ranked uh, personally. Now, this is different from our rankings at Dauber Prospects. I am the director of North American Scouting at Dauber, but that's a consolidated list based on all of our scouts' viewings. Uh, but this list I have out is my personal list of, of who I like. Um, so you can find that. It's a tiered list with uh, colorful uh, tiers and all that, so you can go and check that out. Um, really useful, and I'm basically going to be basing myself off of that to see uh, what teams think, essentially, uh, heading into the draft and how, how NHL scouts make their picks, because there's a lot of variety here, and if you look around, almost every public scouts list is completely different. You've got guys that some have in the top 10 that are outside of the first round on others' list, so it's going to be a really, really interesting draft. Yeah, it's it's really fun to see the differences and the reasons behind each difference. So yeah. without giving away the secret sauce, can you give us a general idea of how you compiled your personal list? Yeah, so the way I work is uh, first I look for three very important elements in combination. So if a player has all three of those, it'll rank really highly on my list. So it's smart, skill, and intensity. Um, if you have those three things, you can get away with lower foot speed or being smaller or not being as physical or etc. But for me, the three most important elements and the elements that usually translate to the most upside are the trifecta of smarts, skill and intensity. Um, so that's usually how I work and how I rank uh, my stuff. But I also look at some standout elements. So if a player has an elite level, uh, for example, shot, um, but ranks lower in small, smart skill and intensity overall, they'll still have that compensated. Basically, what I'm looking for is upside. So if I think a player can score 40 despite not being the smartest or despite not being the fastest or, um, you know, the, the, the most intense player, they're still going to rank really high on my rankings. I'm basically looking to swing for the fences because I can do that in my own personal little rankings that I put out on Twitter. No one's got a sword to my neck. I'm, I don't have the threat of being fired above me or anything like that. So it's yeah. much, much easier for me to to swing for the fences. And that's what I do with my rankings. I really look at upside and see who I like best in terms of uh, their projectability and, and who could end up being the best scorer or overall the, best, the most impactful player of this draft. And, and that's basically the uh, the really fascinating portion of private lists versus NHL team lists. Uh, it's something that a lot of people tend to uh, overlook is that simple fact that jobs are on the line. So things yeah. kind of change. Not to mention what you value 
may be different from what they value. So lists will be a little bit different. And this uh, this narrative that I've been seeing on on social media, where if they don't pick player X, I'm going to set myself on fire. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it it seems a little bit over over dramatic to me. Um, basically, I look at your list. I look at most of the lists that are out there and just about every name I see in that top 10 are going to be excellent hockey players. Yep. Absolutely. The top 12, 13 in this draft class, high end caliber, high upside players. Um, not all of them are certain bets. There are some guys in my top 13 that I, I know for sure have a possibility of not making an initial lineup one day, but all of them have top line or top pair potential in my opinion. So it's really based on upside here. There are more surefire bets in my, you know, the way I've got it tiered up is I've got tier one, then tier two is picks two and three, then tier three is picks four and five, then you got a big tier from six to 13, and then another big tier from 14 to 24, right? The tier from 14 to 24 has a lot of high floor, low ceiling players um, compared to the guys from six to 13, who for me all have a very high ceiling, but also have the risk of not panning out so that's the way i work personally i know for sure that there are guys with high floors and low ceilings that are going to go in the top six top seven top eight of this draft so yeah no it's just a a difference in philosophy really and it's just based on the comfort i have of being able to make these swings from from the comfort of my own home with my little colorful rankings you know it's i love what i do and i take it very seriously but at the end of the day i know that no one's after me and, and, and I don't have to answer to anybody when I put out these rankings. So it's a, it's a quite cozy and safe position to have in the scouting community. And for the last little while, I've been following what you've been putting out, <laughs> looking at your list and the, the, the write-ups that you provide and the reasoning behind these, the, the, the way it's listed. Mm-hmm. I really do enjoy that, that aspect of it. Yeah. I, I like how simple it's laid out for me, the color coding, uh, you know, I, I'm a simple creature at the, at my base, and this makes it very easy to follow, very easy to read. Yeah. Um, you're you're very clear with the skill sets that you're following and why you're mm-hmm. making these choices. Mm-hmm. So, essentially, I'm looking at your list now, and I, everything I see in it looks really good. Um, now, what part of your list differs from the main list uh, in that top ten? Yeah, so you'll notice that in my top 10, I have uh, one, two, three players above six foot, which is, it's it's not something that you usually see. Um, and although all of the guys in my top 10 either play big or compensate with for that lack of size with high-end skills and other elements, it is very obvious to me that, you know, apart from the obvious of Bedard and Mishkov, the guys that are shorter... I've seen lower. You know, I'm talking about guys like Zach Benson, Oliver Moore, um, Axel Sandin Pelica, Andrew Cristal, you know, that kind of range of player usually you'll see a lot lower in rankings. There's one of those I've seen outside of the top two rounds on some rankings. So that gives you an idea. Um, but yeah, the main thing is I'm not as scared of lack of size as others. Um, I'll add a caveat to that. It is very important for those small players to have adapted to their size. Because if a small player plays small and doesn't have any physical elements that makes me confident that they have adapted to their size, you're out of my top two rounds, almost necessarily, unless you have an elite skill. Uh, And we'll get to that later. But yeah, the main thing with me is 
I'm not as big on size as NHL scouts probably are, as we've seen with re recent picks like Maverick Lamoureux, who went uh, in the top 25, I believe, uh, in last year's draft and probably shouldn't have based on his skill set. Um, teams love size, and that's one thing I'm not too scared of is to draft shorter players who have that high-end skill set. Now, in, in looking at your list now, um, just to start off, clearly Bedard's his own tier. That's off the table. Yep. Uh, now, I'm looking at the next tier. You have Fantilli Michkov. And Michkov, for my listeners, Canadians broadcast, they're going to be very... Uh, there, there's a bit of a, a friction there yep. for them because <laughs> he's expected to be at five. Now, you have him at three, which honestly makes sense skill-wise. Yep. Is that where you expect him to be, or is that just your basic this is where his skill set is. Yeah, so these rankings aren't kind of a mock draft or a prediction of where players will go. This is just where I would pick them and in which order. And for me, Mishkov is in contention with Fantilli as the second best prospect in this draft. And if it if he were if he were as good along the boards and as good on four checking as Fantilli is, he'd be he'd be in contention with Bedard. But for me, Mishkov's skill set is high end. You can't really point to anything other than his goal scoring say it's elite, but he's got great hands, great playmaking really really good hockey sense he's got that sixth sense of knowing where pucks are going to be before they land there so he's often anticipating play getting ahead of plays and, and making really really fantastic reads on the ice i absolutely love Matt Michkov, and i think that a lot of the issues with him have been overblown i think russia has bigger fish to fry than to keep a player in russia um it, it's it's a country with a very complex geopolitical situation and like i said they've got bigger fish to fry than matt Van michkov uh, and michkov has made it very very clear that he wants to play in the nhl so i don't get what the issue is i believe there was something about him um being evasive or not really being available for interviews with teams or anything like that he was on vacation i think it was in bahrain or dubai or something he was just on vacation yeah. and it got blown up into this massive thing but you know let a guy enjoy his vacay like what's the issue <laughs> you know uh so yeah He's apparently supposed to be in Nashville, I believe, this weekend prior yeah. to the uh, awards ceremony. Mm -hmm. So that'll provide an opportunity for teams who want to speak to him to speak to him. His yeah. agent made it very clear that he was available. Um, so for myself, I'm going to see that whoever goes to sit down with him is going to be very telling. And I yeah. fully expect the Canadians to be one of those teams. They're already, yeah, they've already been reported to be uh, seeking out an interview with him. So that's that's telling to me. Um and given his play, you know, I had my concerns when he was in SKA, but he quickly realized that a lot of the concerns with his on-ice game was just pure urgency because he knew that he wouldn't be on the ice for another 15 minutes. So when he got on the ice, he was shooting everything. He was getting pucks in corners, putting his head down, just trying to blast to the net, um, literally shooting pucks from the corner of the ice, quite literally trying to yeah. bank them off of the goalie's head, Cole Caulfield style. So... <laughs> He, he was generally just, it was pure panic and urgency in his game because he knew he was getting three minutes that night and he needed to, he needed to do the most out of those three minutes and get a goal on on, uh, on the score sheet, right? But once he moved to Sochi, man, he, he got comfortable because he knew that he was going to be back on the ice in a minute and a half, not in 15 minutes. So you saw a different player, more comfortable, more aware, Matvey Michkov, who wasn't running on adrenaline urgency. He was holding on to pucks, cutting to the inside, working really well below the dots. I'd say there isn't a better scorer there isn't a better player six feet around the net than my famous call in this draft. He's just so good at, he always finds the smallest holes to squeeze pucks through goaltenders and always finds ways to find the back of the net. And on top of that, he's added 
a lot of playmaking elements. Now, he's going to remain a defensive liability for his whole career. I don't think you're getting any defensive anything from Mishkov, but you're not drafting him for that. He's a high-end offensive creator. Yeah, and I noticed that as well from the beginning of the season to the end of the season. There was a, a, a shift in confidence. Yep. So that, I believe, had to do with his shift to uh, Sochi. It yep. gave him the ice time that he required. He wasn't Absolutely. trying to do too much. Exactly. And I personally would have loved to have seen him live, for instance, at the World Juniors, so he could be uh, compared head-to-head with some of these players, such as Connor Bedard. Because yep. when he did go head-to-head a couple of years ago internationally, mm-hmm. it was a uh, it, it was a debate. What, who's going to go number one? Yep, absolutely. The, the Helenka Gretzky Cup for him was his coming up party. What was it? 14 points in seven games against players twice as, uh, you know, two years older than him. It's like yeah. you rarely see that from a prospect that age. Um, and Mishkov has consistently and always played above his age group. He's never played a single year at the same age of his, uh, that he is. So, you know, in a 16, 15, 16 year old season, he was playing in the MHL against up to 20 year olds. This year, he's 18 playing against men in, in the KHL. And shattering records putting up more points than tarasenko than kuznetsov than you know players like that at, at the same age so he's the type of guy who's constantly played above its age group and that's really really important to look at as a scout is is he constantly able to outplay his age and if he is usually you've got a high-end prospect on your hands that's the same thing with bedard at 15 he gained he was the first whl to gain exceptional status played in the whl has been just tearing it up and now what was it 72 goals 73 assists in in 60-ish games um, in, in, in the WHL for Regina, nothing much, right? Just, okay. yeah, it's no, okay. not much. Exactly. Right. Just, just average stuff. Uh, but yeah, no, and especially at the world juniors, man, I think the world juniors is really when Connor Bedard dug a trench between him and Adam Fantilli and went, you're not crossing this. This is my territory. I'm first overall. So just a fantastic tournament for him. It would have been great to see Mishkov there, but obviously the political scape is what it is. Um, but again, the only thing that's, the only issue in that sense, in you know, politically, the only issue that's that's holding back Michkov is a lack of international play. Other than that, yeah. I'm not concerned at all. You know, I don't think Russia's going to kidnap his family and, and keep like that's just they've like I said they've got bigger fish to fry. I don't think that's a, that much of an issue. It's just a matter of whether or not he's going to extend his contract or, or come over to North America for his chance he gets in 25-26. Yeah, and for me, that's the biggest risk. Uh, the uncertainty surrounding that. Will he be willing to come to the NHL? Will he stay longer? Um, from everything, like you mentioned before, uh, he has stated he wants to play in the NHL. Yeah. That, But that could change. We don't we don't know. Mm-hmm. That, that's really the one thing that would be holding me back. Yeah. Um, now, there's something that might hold others back, and I think this might be a bit of a, uh, a, a game that, Washington is playing, and that's the comments from Washington's Russian scout talking about Mitchkov's attitude, hmm. stating that he's standoffish, he's he's rude to his teammates, his coaches, the fans, and uh, avoids the scouts. He doesn't want to talk to anybody, but just throwing him under the bus, calling the worst of the worst of the worst. Listen, I I've never spoken to any Russian coach ever, um, for good reason. I don't speak Russian. Uh, but uh, honestly, the on-ice play speaks for itself. And for me, if there are some attitude concerns, I can play in his final rankings. But for me, it's just a player with that skill set comes around once in a generation. And if you get a chance to pick him at fifth overall, he could be a Hall of Famer. If you get a Hall of Famer at fifth overall, you're laughing, right? I mean, 
this draft class is great, but it's not five Hall of Famers great. It's <laughs> it's two, maybe three Hall of Famers great. So yeah. I'm still taking that risk based on, on, you know, especially at fifth. I'd say if I'm San Jose, I'm running to the stage again. I'm at fourth overall because they've got the most time to work with. They're not in any rush in order to become a contender, and they can wait until 25, 26, right? Um, but if it's not San Jose and it's not Montreal, Arizona's not picking him. Um, and seven through nine is what? It's Philadelphia, Washington, and dang, I remember who's, I forget who's there at ninth. I know St. Louis is 10. I can't remember nine off the top of my head. Either way, um, I would expect him to slip at least to 10 if he's not picked at four or five. So if you can get a trade up and get a pick at 10th and you still get him, fantastic. But it would be so funny if a team gets a Hall of Famer outside of the top 10 in this draft class. And I'm serious about that. I think Mishkov has the potential. And, and his floor is really high as well. At very least, you're getting a, a 25, 30-goal scorer on a second, third line. That's the worst you can get out of Mishkov when he comes over after his contract. It's just it's mind-boggling to me that he's in any conversation outside of the top five at all. It's just surprising at all. I mean, it depends who's available to the Habs, but for me, Mishkov is third overall. So, Will Smith, below him. Zach Benson, who I love, below him. Leo Carlson, below him. So, take your pick between those three guys. I'm okay with either one, but Mishkov is still in a tier above them, in my opinion. Yeah, and with the uh, the uh, the information given by the Washington scouts about his attitude. I think it's kind of a plant. If there's any one team in the NHL that absolutely adores Russians, it, it, it's Washington. Yep. absolutely. Yeah. It could be a game they're playing just so that he would slide to them. Yeah, no, I was talking about that. Um, I was talking about that with, uh, I, I was, uh, I hopped on as a guest on uh, locked on Washington capitals, the podcast. And I was talking about that at length of, I mean, Washington's such a, a Russian friendly team. And they've got such solid connections in terms of scouts in Russia that, you know, they'll do their homework on Michkov. I don't know what the... Uh, maybe it's founded, maybe it's not. All I know is he's an elite talent, and I would take him, if I, especially at 8th by Washington. If I'm if I'm a scout at the Caps, I'm screaming at my team, like, pick this guy. There's no way. Yeah. Yeah. They'll run to the stage. Hopefully. Just run. <laughs> <laughs> now... I, I do agree that San Jose is a likely landing spot, and assuming they do pick him, that means that either Leo Carlson or Will Smith had dropped to five, more than likely Will Smith. You mentioned how much you liked him. What was it in his game that, that put him ahead of Moore? It's very, very tight, I will say that. It's extremely tight between the two. I think that Will Smith will have more points at the end of the day by a decent margin, but I still think that Oliver Moore will be more impactful. So Will Smith is pure skill. His hands are tremendous. His playmaking is tremendous. His shot is tremendous. Um, I have concerns with his skating that I don't have with a guy like Zach Benson, who's a worse skater, um, mainly because Will Smith plays faster than he skates. He plays a Trevor Zegers, Logan Cooley style of play without the foot speed of a Trevor Zegers, or Logan Cooley. So the issue with that is once he gets to the NHL level, is his, is his tendency to cut to the middle, to, to slow down the play, to draw players in, is it going to work as efficiently when his hands and his brain are working too fast for his feet? Or is he going to be able to up that skating ability and become a true high-end, pure-skill guy? I think he's got a solid chance of making it, but as he stands, his game does need some tweaks that other players don't. Um, especially Oliver Moore. Moore is straight-up the best skater in the draft by a very 
decent margin. I would put maybe Dmitry Simashev in there in terms of skaters, but Oliver Moore has a trifecta of smarts, skill, and intensity on top of the best speed in the draft. So he's 7th overall for me, and it was difficult for me to, to cut between those two guys. Because like I mentioned, Oliver Moore's defensive impact, his physical impact, his forechecking impact, all that is vastly superior to Will Smith's. The only thing that Will Smith is, is high-end in is everything that's puck skills related and intelligence related. And I highly value those two things, but I feel like if if it comes down to one game and you want to win a cup, you know, if it's the game seven of the Stanley Cup finals and you're looking for one guy to win you a game, I would take Oliver Moore above Will Smith. But Smith has such a high-end skill set that I chew him in for 90 points a year at his best if he works out the way I think he can. That's the difference for me is are you looking to have the best, the most impactful player or the highest scoring player? And I, I value offense to a point where I still have Will Smith very, very slightly ahead of him. Now, there's also the uh, the discussion at five that Ryan Leonard may be the, the man to be mm. selected there. And he's got a bit of a snarl to his game. Do you see that translating? Yeah, no, I, I see him as the type of guy who's almost definitely going to be a 60-point scorer. I have a hard time seeing him more become more than that, but thinking at a 60-point power forward who's gonna who's a shoe-in for 30, 35 goals a season, that's great value. And his size at 5'11", 181 pounds, he doesn't play that size at all. He's very physical, very intense, goes along the boards, drops the shoulder, um, challenges defenders a lot on the forecheck as well, and he's got sneaky good playmaking as well. Um, it's one thing that doesn't show up based on the fact that he's playing on the line with two fantastic playmakers in Will Smith and, and Gabe Perot. And Leonard's all, almost always in the finishing situation in that in, on that line, but he's a great playmaker as well. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's a it's a, a well above average skill set, but it's not the level of skill set of a Will Smith where you could see him put up north of a point a game. Um, but another player who's going to be very impactful. Would I take him at five? No, I don't. I don't. I think that's too early. Um, but if the Habs are hell-bent on size, they want size, they know it, they want a guy who's physical, he's probably the most, the best physical forward in the top ten. Um, but there are a good two, three other guys, two, three other forwards and a defenseman that, that I'd consider before him. Yeah, and on to the defenseman. I know that there's talk of the Canadians really liking Reinbacher. Yeah. And on your list, he's not even the second defenseman. He's the third. You have Dmitry Simashev first so clearly he's got the size mm -hmm. uh he but his numbers weren't all as impressive as you'd think now what did you see in his offensive game that kind of pushed him above sandy pelica yeah so in axel you know the difference between simishev and sandy pelica is they're fundamentally different players right mm -hmm. so simishev i i see simishev simishev to me is what people think david reinbacher is so a fantastic fantastic skater with high-end defending um, the, the best rush defender in the draft who's also able to make some high-end offensive plays, who shows flashes of offense that if you develop them, you can get something good out of it. That's what I see described as David Reinbacher. But for me, that's textbook Simishev. The difference between Simishev and Reinbacher to me is Simishev, Simishev's flashes of offense are not just more frequent, but they're brighter. His playmaking ability at times is amazing his ability to skate the puck up the ice he's a fantastic transition facilitator very rarely does he lose a puck in transition on top of that um his angle changes on shots just these small plays like little give and goes from the blue line in order to, to hit an open pocket in the high slot S small things like that that he's already got so many foundations he is pretty raw as a defenseman but 
any defenseman at that age usually is. That's usually why defensemen take a bit longer. But defensively, he's already at an NHL level. You could put him in a bottom pair and he'd do a great job as he is. The only thing is, can you work on those flashes, make them more frequent? Now, Ryan Bakker had more points in his in, in his um, in his draft year in, in uh, the Swiss National League. But the thing with the Swiss National League is you see a lot of collapsing in defensive structures. And on a larger ice surface, that leaves Reinbacher all the space he wants to use is skating and just skate in circles around the offensive zone five times if he wants. And that's often what you saw out of him. A lot of circling the offensive zone, not a lot of give and goes playing to the inside, which you see in Simashev's game. So I think that Simashev's offensive flashes are both more translatable, more frequent, and brighter. So that's why I have Simashev well above Reinbacher. And, and the reason I have Simashev above Sandin Pelika is Sandin Pelika is clear of anyone else offensively. But Sandy Pelican needs a lot of work defensively. A lot of it. So yep. just that combination of skills of Simishev is so enticing. Yeah, and and not having seen Simishev play internationally because of the Russian factor as well, mm-hmm. that that might have hurt his uh, draft rankings on most boards anyway. Yeah. Now having watched both Sandy Pelica and Reinbacher in person internationally, I can state their games are very, they're translatable, and I do enjoy them. And with Reinbacher, I know for a fact that he had played that entire tournament ill, unable to eat solid foods. So that type of dedication bumps him up a little bit on my list. Yeah. But I, I'm I'm in agreement that he is more towards the middle of the, the pack mm-hmm. when it comes to the first round. Yeah, no, it's just about what you value. Because personally... I have a very hard time seeing Reinbacher not become a second-pair defenseman, but also have a very difficult time seeing him become anything more than that. So it's just about how much do you value a second-pair defenseman? What would you trade for a second-pair defenseman? Would it be a pick in the top 10, in the 10 to 20 range, or in the 20 to 30 range? I'm thinking if you're going for a second-pair defenseman, a pick around 15-16 is well worth the trade. That's how I see it. So that's why I have Reinbacher 16th. It's just I see him so clearly becoming that second-pair defenseman, um, that is just, I can already shoo him in as that. I, I'm, you know, I feel like people are shell-shocked regarding Moritz Sider. When Moritz Sider got drafted, it was he was this guy who everyone thought was a really good defensive player with not a lot of offensive upside and et cetera, et cetera. And then the Red Wings pick him at, what, eighth? And then he becomes a Calder Trophy winner. And then everyone's trying to look for the next Moritz Sider. But there are fundamental differences between Reinbacher and Sider. And those differences are smaller between Sider and Simishev. I think those are that's a better comparison to me um, than, than Reinbacher to Sider. So it, it's just you know it's another you know he's he's another you know player from an obscure Central European league, right-handed big defenseman, uh, putting up decent numbers in, in a Central European league. So people are like, oh, this is Moritz Sider, but he's not. He's just absolutely not the same player. Well, the NHL is known as a copycat league, so that yep. makes perfect sense. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, looking down towards the bottom of the first round, uh, you have players like ha- Samuel Hanzek, uh, mm-hmm. Nate Danielson. Mm-hmm. I love those two players. Uh, they both play in the West. Yep. Uh, Danielson is a very strong two-way center. Mm-hmm. But at the very bottom of that tier in the first round, you have Ethan Gauthier, who just recently stated that after his interview with the Canadians, he really feels like they're going to pick him. So if the Canadians actually do, what do you see from him that the Canadians would get? He, I, I call him the perfect line glue. Um, just 
he brings the line together so well. He's one of the most intelligent players uh, in this kind of tier of the draft class. Um, really solid as well, very physical um, off the puck. Loves to throw his body around, but doesn't do it mindlessly. He's pretty calculated and tactical in his body checks. Um, and on top of that, he's really, really good at finding open space in the offensive zone. So he's going to pop up unmarked in pockets all the time. His favorite thing to do is he'll play a give-and-go, um, and then one-time it from the high slot, then circle down, catch his own rebound, take a shot, catch his own rebound, take a... You know what I mean? He's that kind of player. Board battle, gain the puck back, get off the boards, make a pass, one-timer. It's just... It's constant effort, constant cycling. Um, so he's he's extremely good as a connector. So if you put him on the line with a puck carrier and a sniper, oh my goodness, he's going to make really, really short work uh, of it on a line like that. You know, if you, I would see a line like Gauthier, Doc, and Caulfield as a line would be really, really good for him in terms of what he brings to the game and how he builds off of players. Um, so yeah, just there's a lot of fits within the Habs lineup for a player like Gauthier. Um, he's not the highest upside guy, but at 31, 32, if you're getting a surefire middle six forward who's just an ultimate line glue, you're laughing. It's a great, great value pick at 31. I think, you know, I wouldn't be surprised at all if he's available at 31 that the Habs would pick him, and I'd be really happy with that pick. And it would it would uh, check a few boxes as well. He's a francophone. He's from Quebec. He plays the Q. Uh, he does bring that that uh, more hard-nosed style game, kind of like his father did. Yep. Uh, so he, he checks a lot of boxes for them. And I would I would be happy if that's who they picked. They, yep. I think he fits he fits into what the Canadians need in their system. They, yep. they don't have a lot of what he brings. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Um, him and Joshua Roy, especially, the fact that Joshua Roy played most of the year with him, uh, I... I did a scouting report for him on my personal YouTube channel, and I looked at the difference between him with Joshua Hua and him without Joshua Hua, and Hua went to play in the World Juniors. And he actually had more points without Joshua Hua, so it's not like it's not like he's riding on Hua's coattails or anything. Um, and even Hua had better production with Ethan Gauthier there. So the way I see it is he elevates the level of play of the players around him. And like I said, to get a player like that at 31... Who's just overall going to make your product as a team better rather than just looking at, oh, how many points does he individually have? I think that's a great mindset to have on that scouting staff. And like I said, Goche would be a fantastic pick at 31. Be great to see. Uh, that would be a big hit, especially at the end of the first night for uh, the fans up in Montreal. Mm-hmm. Now, moving towards the second day of the draft, we're starting the second round, and there's several names in that uh, in that tier that you have that really really uh interests me but there's one in particular that a lot of people may not know mm-hmm. that i want to kind of cover a little bit and that's will whitelock mm-hmm. uh he he played wing and center for youngstown led them in points led them to a championship but he's small yep. and that's what that's what people are going to look at they're going to see the five foot nine they're not going to see the 36 goals in 60 some odd games <laughs> yeah. no absolutely whitelock is so crafty He's extremely crafty, extremely elusive in the offensive zone. A decent skater, nothing off the charts, but good enough. Um, but really what makes him work is just the off-puck movement in the offensive zone, his ability to find space, um, and especially his ability to get off the boards, which was really surprising to me. For a player that size, he's really good at winning battles and then quickly getting off the boards to make a play, which I look at in, in terms of a habit with players. It's really important. 
Because the less time you spend along the boards, the more time you're spending creating dangerous chances. A lot of dangerous chances in the NHL come from what we call board-to-middle plays. So either skating off the boards or passing off the boards in order to gain the middle with, with the puck is super, super important at the NHL level, and does that flawlessly. Um, wicked shot, great playmaking, fantastic hands. Um, he barely made, missed the cut for the first round. He's at 35 in my rankings. Um, but yeah. that entire tier, there's an entire tier that ranges from 25 to 46. That's a whole tier to me. So for yeah. me, I genuinely think there are 45 to 50 first round potential, first round value draft picks in this draft. So up until pick 46, you're still getting a first rounder. And that's part of the reason why this draft is seen as so deep. It's yep. not just the really high end skill in the first uh, five to eight players. Yep. It, it's it's the fact that you're looking at almost 50 players as being first round eligible types. Yeah. And with Will Lightlaw, I think he kind of fits what you mentioned at the very start of the program. Mm -hmm. And that's the intelligence factor along with the adjustable, uh, the adjustable factor. Mm -hmm. He, he is very, very smart when he's on the boards. He, he knows he's outmanned. He knows yeah. he's out, out muscled, but it's his positioning and his vision that tends to, uh, compensate. Now, Absolutely. he's on his way to the University of Wisconsin, mm -hmm. uh, which Canadians fans know what kind of program that is. However, uh, it's a new coach that's coming into Wisconsin, so there's going to yep. be a slight change in the program. Yeah, and I'm hoping that brings some change because Wisconsin has been tough to watch, not just in terms of their pr production um, and the point totals uh, overall, but just the the amount of time that they allocate to their younger players, to their freshmen, to their sophomores, it's been frustrating. And I, him and him and Charlie Stramel, both of them are going to be playing for Wisconsin uh, next year. That's a great pairing, first and foremost. I think that those two are going to be have fun together. But it's really important that they play above 18 minutes a night because otherwise it's just going to be another season of mediocrity and another season of not really developing anything major. I mean, the last product that Wisconsin developed properly was – probably Cole Caulfield or maybe you could put Alex Newhook in that cat in, the, in that category uh, not Alex Newhook but um a Dylan Holloway rather uh, of the Oilers uh, yeah those are the last two guys I can remember that actually have decent NHL value out of that program so it's not been a program that's been that's been highly sought after by by prospects not a lot of them commit to Wisconsin and those who do are usually lower end prospects so there's a reason for that is that Players and their agents do their homework when it comes to, to NCAA commitments, not just in terms of the program's strength, in terms of academics, but also their hockey program and how how likely they are to develop properly. So it's a big concern for me that he's going to Wisconsin, but if the new coach brings in a new philosophy and, and plays players differently than the, the previous regime did, could become a decent program again. Now, previously with, uh, with Holloway and with Caulfield, Mm -hmm. What they were missing in their game was more defense. Yeah. And that's what Granado really preached. So th they were there getting what they were missing in their game, mm -hmm. whereas other players need to build their offensive side. Yeah. Uh, with the new program, uh, their assistant coach, especially uh, Nick, Nick Oliver, mm -hmm. he, is, uh, he worked with the under-18 Team USA, yeah. uh, and he's, he's known for being a bit of a, a goal whisperer. Mm -hmm. So it, it, there seems to be a bit of a shift in the mentality in Wisconsin. Yeah, hopefully. I, I think that will bring a lot of good things for Whitelaw and, and Stramel. And that's why, you know, I've seen people who have Stramel outside of their, their top two rounds mm -hmm. almost exclusively because he's going to Wisconsin. 
and the change in coaching does give me some hope, and that's why I've got him at 54th. You know, those are two guys who I think could have a lot of fun together. There's still some issues inherently with Stramel that make me kind of more sour on him than other prospects, and that's why he's in the tier below um, the 25 to 45 range. But still, at the end of the day, if we're talking about Will Whitelaw here, we're talking about a guy who's constantly found ways to adapt to his size, to adapt to situations in general. Um, even when things got tough in the USHL playoffs and um, he was getting double teamed by opponents because they knew how good he was, he adapted his game from being a, a rush carrier and goal scorer to becoming a give-and-go playmaker, which we also saw in Connor Bedard's um, adaptability. And that's one big thing I love about Bedard is he's skilled enough to not need it, but he adapts flawlessly to situations. Yeah. So White Loss kind of the same type of player mentally is nowhere near the skill set of a Bedard. I don't think anyone is in recent memory, yeah. but he's got that same mindset of, okay, this doesn't work. How do I improve? How do I survive? How do I adapt? How do I work around it? And I think that's wonderful. And that's why he's 35th in my rankings. And on Strammel, he, he intrigues me as well. Uh, I've, I've watched a lot of his, hot, his games this year. Mm-hmm. If somehow he ends up in the third round mm-hmm. and the, uh, he's on the board, I would jump all over that chance because a yep. player of his size, uh, I think his skating can be improved upon, especially with the Canadians development staff. Yeah. Uh, that I think that would turn into a very good middle six winger. Yeah. No, absolutely. I see more as a winger mainly because of it's not just a lack of skating, it's the lack of pace in his game. He needs yeah. he's a lot less north south than he should be. And I feel like adding more of that more north south element, not just in terms of his speed, but in terms of his mentality. Just being comfortable dropping the shoulder and going around defenders and driving the net. I think that'll add a really good element to his game. And obviously skating has been more and more um, studied and more and more, you know, uh, has become more and more likely to be worked on, right? We saw it with Suzuki, with Braden Point, with all these low-end skaters that became high-end players because they improved their skating, right? I feel like Stramel could be in that category. But the issue with me, you know, is it's very hard to change a player's mindset. Will, Will Whitelaw's mindset is flawless, and that's why I love him more than Stramel. Um, but yeah. Stramel is a lot more of the, let me wait and see what unfolds before I, I pull the trigger, right? And just going from that to, okay, let's go. It's it's a very difficult shift in mindset, and sometimes it comes with maturity, but Stramel is one of the oldest players in the class, so that also plays into it. It's that kind of thing. It's just a mindset for me that, that kind of pins him a bit lower than he probably should be. And for my listeners who don't watch a lot of NCAA hockey, you, what you're, uh, the way you're explaining him for them, uh, I'm going to kind of paint it as he needs more Josh Anderson in his yep. game, and Josh Anderson needs more Stramel in his yep. game. Absolutely. That's exactly it. Yeah. And I'd love to see it uh, at the third round. That'd be great. But back into the second round, uh, around 37, mm-hmm. there's a lot of talk about goaltenders. And you have a couple of goalies that are hovering right around that pick. Yep. And while a lot of people have Hrabel as their their first goaltender to come off the board, you have who, in my opinion, is the correct po- uh, choice, Trey Augustine. Absolutely. And it's not just the numbers because, you know, putting up good numbers in the NTDP oftentimes is easy as a goaltender, right? But if you look at the decor in, in the NTDP this year especially, it's not all that. I mean... The highest I have an NTDP defenseman is uh, Aram Menechian, who is 59th in my rankings. So it's not a deep defensive class like we saw early, you know, in, in previous years with the, the Lane Hudson's and Luke Hughes's and Quinn Hughes's and all that. 
it's a very, very poor defense core, um, an, an unusually poor defense core in, uh, in the NTDP. And despite that, Trey Augustine is not only putting up great numbers, but putting up great performances. I've never seen a 6'1", 180-pound goaltender like him be able to move so flawlessly, be able to adjust his feet. His feet are fantastic. His technique is fantastic. And on top of that, he's got high-end hockey sense for a goaltender. He's, he flares danger which is one thing I don't really see from Hrabal. Um for me, for me, Michael Hrabal really kind of strikes me as... He's not your prototypical, like, 6'6", 200-pound goaltender that exclusively relies on his size, but he does go down early. He does leave some space above his shoulders because he thinks, okay, I'm 6'6", and I can clog up the top end of the, of the net with my shoulders. But uh, NHL scorers are very quick to pick up on that stuff. And it's going to be very hard for them to pick up on... Trey Augustine's weaknesses because he covers them so well with his foot speed. He doesn't go down early. He's comfortable g getting deeper in his net to cover more space, um, but he's also comfortable challenging goaltender, uh, challenging scores by going above his circles and and you know especially on breakaways you'll see him go up to the hash marks really comfortably, um, and just keep up with players with his with his feet. He reminds me a lot of a Devin Levi in terms of his his profile. Yes. Yeah. Very similar in terms of about the same size, same high-end uh, foot speed and intelligence um so i really love those two guys and i think they're quite similar in terms of how they play and we've seen so far what Devin levi's done in his short stint with uh, buffalo and his long stint in uh, the ncaa has been fantastic so yeah I've, i think augustine is the highest upside uh goaltender in this draft although Hrabal is the highest floor goaltender in this draft now i know that uh, augustine is going to probably get a bad rep because of that one game at mm -hmm. the juniors against Sweden, where he let up eight goals, yep. they won. Yeah, they did. But they won. <laughs> so he he kind of he kind of did the old uh, Grant Fuhrer. I'm gonna make one more save than the other guy. Yep. <laughs> and I was at the game. I was watching it, and you can tell he did. He was basically the reason they won. I know there was nine goals scored, <laughs> but that was because all the players were up at the red line yep. watching him make saves. No, exactly. He had very little support, and that's just kind of par for the course with uh, with the NTDP lately. It's a very offensive team, um, both at the U18s level and at the junior level. Um, kind of the same story. I love Lane Hudson, but man, he he let his goalie off to draw to dry sometimes, and that needs to come a long way. Um, yeah. Obviously, we all know how skilled he is offensively, but he he was part of the problem defensively, and Augustine was bailing him out a couple times, and more than a couple times, so. What I saw at the World Juniors, especially in that Sweden game, it just it just kind of rang home how how much better he is than the rest of the goaltenders in this class. I know I have him close. Um, I've got Augustine 38th and Robal 40th, but for me, Augustine is a notch above Robal. So the, he, he's really solid, and I had a hard time excluding him from the first round because um, he really is that good. And he's also very well respected amongst his teammates. He's he's a very popular person. Yep. Uh, he's very uh, he's loose. He he's he's uh, he's a happy kind of guy. Kind of everybody that I spoke to around the team glowed about him without even being prompted. Like Red Savage would not stop talking about this guy. <laughs> yep. He he felt really bad about the game, even though they won. He was near tears saying we kind of let him down and yeah. he deserved better. And that kind of, uh, that, that level of respect that he's commanding from his teammates, 
says a lot about his character, in my yep. opinion. Hundred percent, and you, you can you can tell a lot from a player by how his teammates speak about him, and yeah, from what I've seen in those interviews, everyone in that in that locker room respected him, and it's because of what he brings, and it's because of the things that he does, and the reads that he makes, and sometimes it's as simple as not freezing a puck at a moment where you can play it up the ice to a teammate so that they can get a break. That gets your forwards loving you. I can tell you that <laughs> when when they yeah. when you hear a hey hey hey, and then the the goalie just just instead of covering it just blasts up the ice for a two-on-one those those tape forwards, to tape too yeah no those forwards are looking back at him and pointing their finger between being like you did that they love that yeah. stuff so yeah a goaltender can often be the difference between a goal and 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 a save um you know in a game so it's 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 so important for me to have goaltenders with the hockey sense to recognize the situation and know when to freeze and when not to freeze so that's one thing i took into consideration with augustine now because of the depth of this draft class and there's going to be so many that could go first round, may not go, you know, it, there's just, there's such a, a volatile uh, top of the list. Yeah. That's going to mean there's going to be several players that slide down. So in your opinion, who do you think is the most likely to be the ones to slide down to say 101, 110 around where the Canadians are picking in the fourth round? Uh, I'd say Jaden Perron. I wouldn't be surprised that all of teams are sour on him based on the lack of size and um, the lack of any kind of. He's very he's very weird because some games you he's the best player on the ice by far, but some other games you barely notice him. Um, and one thing you want out of a small player is for them to be noticed every game. Now I have Perron twelfth um, overall for a very good reason. I I can't name you a weakness of his. Um, maybe his top speed needs to come a, a length or two, but I think that's going to come as he bulks up. He's 5'8", but 157 pounds, so he's got some room to add weight. Uh, so I think, you know, adding some leg strength will get him there. But really elusive, really crafty, some of the best hands on the draft. Insane defensively. Genuinely, he impressed me so much defensively with his effort level, his motor, um, and, and just the, the calculated measure with which he kind of picks apart at defenders on the forecheck. He doesn't rush at him, you know, like a, like a, a dog on a bone. He just little stick tap here, going the other way, lifting the stick, um, you know, shielding with his body real quick, and that's the thing is, I'm no, I mentioned earlier that caveat of if you're small, you need to adapt to your size. Jaden Perron's perfectly adapted to his size. He wins battles against guys that are twice his size simply because he uses his mechanics perfectly. He knows when and how to apply pressure on the carrier. He, it's just, I have a hard time explaining and understanding why he's i think it's outside of the top 100 on cory promen's rankings and i'm having a hard time wrapping my head around it because like i mentioned he's 12th on my rankings for a reason you know if he was the same size but not as good physically he'd be outside of the first round for sure but that skill set with the physical acumen with the defensive acumen i love him and if he's available at 100 in the hundreds which could be honestly very well could be i'm running to the stage absolutely I wouldn't be against that. When you hit, start getting into the fourth round, that's where you start making those home run swings. Yep. You go for the high end. You ignore the floor, so to speak. You're not looking for safe picks. You're looking for those home runs. Yeah, and he Hopefully. could be that. Yeah, yeah. Hopefully, because uh, you know some some NHL scouts are still in the let me keep my job mode in that range. Which I yeah. listen. You already have maybe a ten percent chance of getting an NHLer out of it. You might as well go for the five percent chance of having a star. You know what I mean? So in that range, I'm definitely picking one of those guys. I think Denver, Denver Barkey is also going to be available in that range. And Denver Barkey is a personal favorite of mine. I, there's not a more intense player in this draft class than him. 
He he's five nine. Um, sorry, five eight hundred and seventy five pounds. Plays way bigger than that. He the amount of times he snuck behind uh, carriers in in transition and just lifted their stick from behind and took the puck the other way. Very Datsukian in that in that sense. Not at all the hands that Datsuk has, but the defensive acumen, the intensity, and the puck skills in general are good enough that he's 36 on my board, but I wouldn't be surprised at all to see him fall out of the top four rounds entirely and be available in the fifth. So that's another guy to take a look at. Now, I'm going to I'm gonna get into my homerism at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. And I know my friends back home in Sudbury might think I'm, I'm pushing towards Coach Adelich. Mm-hmm. Uh, sorry, no. Uh, I'm looking at more the Q League. Uh, and in this fourth round area, you... You have two defensemen that really intrigue me, and that is Etienne Marin and Halifax Moosehead Dylan McKinnon. Now, they're very different defensemen. Oh, yeah. Fundamentally different. But I think they can both provide a big impact to their teams. Now, in, in McKinnon's case, literally provide a big impact. <laughs> yeah. He's a big hitter. <laughs> very physical. Yeah. I especially love how well how good he is at timing his checks um not just physically but his stick checks as well and in in order to kind of break up offensive cycles for the opposition he's so good at timing that perfectly where the player is going to come right in his range he'll wait 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 and then he'll 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 hit a stick in the right lane intercept a puck or get a puck off a stick and uh the puck's off the boards and out but that's the issue the puck's always off the boards and out and that's why he's lower in my rankings is he is a very trigger happy defenseman. He loves he 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 hot potatoes the puck so often. And yeah. you know, as a forward it's got to be frustrating cuz you're constantly chasing defensemen off the rush instead of having a clean pass on your stick when you're free. Um and meanwhile, Etienne-Marin is completely different. I'm very low on him because I have yet to see him change the angle on his shot once from the blue line. And it's extremely frustrating when you know that all he needs is one pump fake and that forwards out of the blue line on the other side and he can just walk into the high, high slot and take a shot. But instead he just shoots it in the shin pads. That's frustrating. Um, but he is intelligent when it comes to picking his options in transition. When it comes to slowing down the play, waiting an extra second just to hit that right lane, he's really good at that. It's just out there side of that I have trouble kind of projecting his game and I feel like the point totals that he had this year in the queue are more reflective of the fact that he was playing 30 minutes a night on average than, than anything uh, he yeah. really was their best player oh yeah no and it, that's not a high bar then that's the issue you know what I mean so yeah yeah but he does I do like that transition game and with McKinnon uh, I've no, I noticed that as the season wore on especially in the playoffs mm-hmm. uh, his game got a little bit more refined he was a little bit more willing to do the offensive side. He was better at making those passes, and it wasn't just the off the glass and out anymore. Yeah, He was looking to make the transition plays. Mm-hmm. And I think next season, when he's playing on the top pair with, with the Mooseheads, mm-hmm. you might see a little bit more of that. I don't know how much more, yeah. but a little bit more. Hopefully, yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> and to, to finish it all off, uh, I know that the Canadians are going to be looking for a couple of uh, goaltenders. We we spoke about a couple before. Now there's another one in this range uh, who is back in the draft, and fans who watch the World Juniors may recognize the name, and that's Adam Gayen. Yeah, the Slovakian goaltender. Yep. Now, 
I think that would be an excellent pick as well in the four, uh, four or five round range. Yeah, absolutely. Now, Guyon is... He's, he played most of the year in the NHL, which is an absolute... It's it's part of the expression. It's kind of a joke of a league. Uh, very difficult in, to, to kind of gauge a goaltender's production there, but I feel like his World Juniors production really put him on the map, and I'd be comfortable with him in the fourth-round range, um, but it's just for a team that needs to do their homework, right? Like, it... it Goalies go on hot streaks all the time, and there's no guarantee that the World Juniors weren't just a happenstance of just a hot streak. But it was the hottest of hot streaks we've seen in a while at a World Juniors uh, tournament. So yeah. I wouldn't blame him at all if you take a shot at him in the fourth round. You might as well. It's the type of range where you very rarely get an NHLer. Now, if you're looking for a surefire NHLer, you definitely go with the McKinnon kind of. Uh, the McKinnon kind of guy. I'd say even Jeremy Wilmer, who's, Wilmer, who's a choice overager from uh, from Boston University. I've watched him a ton this year, just scouting Lane Hudson, and he's always stood out as a fantastic puck carrier, really good, really speedy scorer. Obviously very undersized, but I feel like it's almost a guarantee that he'll, he'll at least play one NHL game. So there are a couple of guys I would consider before Guyon, for the Habs specifically, but for a team that's yeah. absolutely needing a goalie, and can't pick one up at 37 or can't pick one up in the 60s. Sure, take a swing, see what happens. Well, like I said, that's a good time to start making home run swings. Absolutely. If you feel like he's got the highest upside, then go for it. Otherwise, eh, there's other directions you can go. I mean, this that's the beauty of the depth of this draft class. Mm-hmm. Um, now, before I let you go, uh, I just want you to remind everybody where they can find your work and your lists, not just yours, but the ones that you've you've been working on all year. Yeah, no, absolutely. So um, everything I work on goes on Twitter. Um, everything that has my name on it goes on my Twitter. It's Hattie K underscore scouting. Um, lists, rankings, uh, articles, vi- podcasts, uh, scouting reports, video-wise, all of that goes on Twitter. Um, you can also find my podcast, Locked On NHL Prospects, at LO underscore NHL Prospects on Twitter. So that's two sources of um, of me content for you. So, yeah, no, it, it, but it all goes on Twitter. Even my podcast for Locked On NHL Prospects, I'll retweet them on Twitter. So if you have Twitter, uh, you can look me up. Otherwise, just look up my name um, on YouTube, and you'll find my personal YouTube channel with all of um, my videos, my scouting reports, all that stuff. And... Uh, just to tell my my listeners, definitely go check out the YouTube channel. You go in depth on a lot of these players, mm-hmm. and the the way you explain what they're doing, how they're doing, how to improve. Uh, I can't I can't uh, stress enough how much fun it is to watch that channel. So they sh- absolutely should go there and subscribe to your YouTube channel because it's absolutely worth it. Much appreciated. I've got two weeks of vacation from my day job in early July, so uh, expect uh, scouting report videos on all the new Habs drafted prospects then. haven't posted in a while. My last one was Ethan Gochain. It's the only prospect for the 2023 draft I made a video on, but uh, yeah, I really appreciate that. So uh, again, thank you very much for coming back on the show prior to the draft so that we can get a little bit more in-depth. Absolutely. Uh, and as always, you're always welcome to come back at any time. Sure. Uh, I love having you on the show, and I hope I hope I didn't throw you off too too much with uh, <laughs> <laughs> my 
my lack of uh, my lack of couth is start the show. Oh, not at all. Uh, you know, every, all the questions were within my my range of expertise, so I'm more than happy. I had someone ask me about a, a player I hadn't scouted at all this year, and I was like, I'm sorry, I can't I can't tell you much about yeah. that. Uh, but yeah, anything <laughs> that's within anything you have on the list there is perfectly fine to ask question about. Well, I appreciate you coming on, and uh, for my listeners, thank you very very much for for tuning in and continuing to listen. Keep sending those emails in and the requests for guests because that's how we get great guests like Hadi to come back onto the show. Uh, it's, it's your comments saying, Hey, we want more. We want more. So we're going to keep trying our best to get more. Uh, so again, thank you very much. And uh, remember if you're talking about it, so are we. The podcast super friends is a monthly meeting of five podcast producers. Hi, I'm Catherine O'Brien from branch out programs in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. I'm John Gay from Jagged Detroit Podcasts. I'm Matt Kundal from the Sound Off Podcast Network. I'm David Yes from Pod 617, the Boston Podcast Network. And I'm Johnny Peterson from Straight Up Podcasts. Together, they form the Podcast Super Friends, an alliance of podcast masterminds sharing best practices, insights, and discussions to help make you a better podcaster. Follow or subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or at soundoff.network. I'm Matt Kundal, host of the Sound Off Podcast, the show about podcast and broadcast. Since 2016, we've been speaking with amazing people who have populated your ears for decades. Legendary broadcasters, research wizards, talent experts, podcasters, voice talent, Almost 400 stories, all for free. Subscribe or follow the Sound Off Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or at soundoffpodcast.com.